Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. You are going to hear some remarkable stories, always. But more than that, you're going to receive some practical ideas, mindsets, and actions that you can take back and apply in your own life. Now, before we really start into today's program, I encourage you to check me out on Facebook and Twitter through social media, our videos, our book on fire, all the work that we're doing in the community. It's it's pretty remarkable stuff that we, this Live Inspire community, are part of. I want you to learn and hear and then follow what we're doing and how you can play a part in it. Check it out at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. That's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. We'll, of course, have links to old podcasts on there as well. It's a, it's a cool site. You're going to love it. So today's programming, I get to bring into your life not only an author and a world-renowned speaker, but a Jesuit priest. And I realize this this one's kind of going off on a ledge a little bit because much of our programming here and in the marketplace is secular in nature. So why bring in a secular? Why why bring in this Catholic priest, O'Leary? What are we going to gain and grow from this guy? Let me tell you. I went through Catholic education, Jesuit high school and college, graduated, started my own business, 12 years later became a speaker, have given now more than 1,500 presentations around the world, had a blast while doing it. Question 13 on our survey, before we go into any organization, question 13 is this, what topics do you not want John to speak about? What topics do you not want John to speak about? And 1,500 times or so, we have received back the words religion, usually politics too, but religion and politics. And I think as long as we are unwilling to even whisper about religion or politics for that matter, or any topic in life, we are going to be unable to find common ground and to individually and to collectively live our best lives going forward. So we are going to have a topic today really less about religion and more about discovery, more about uncovering who we are, what that calling really means, what really matters in life, and how we can live our best life going forward. It's going to be a fascinating conversation with a fascinating man who never, by the way, this is important to hear on the front side, he never imagined as a kid or as an adolescent or as a college grad that he would become a priest of all things. It's a cool journey. You're going to love it. It's going to inspire you to imagine what you can do in your own life in any place that you may find yourself doing that work, doing that ministry, living that life. So buckle up, open up your minds, open up your hearts, open up your souls, open up your journals, and get ready for best-selling author, Jesuit priest, my friend, Father Jim Martin. Great to be with you. You know, as a uh, Jesuit-trained high school kid and college grad, it is an awesome honor to have one of my favorite authors and thought leaders on the show today. Thanks for being with us. 
My pleasure. An honor to be with you, too. And uh, I, I realize that not everyone is um, a follower of Father Jim's work. So for those who have never heard the name Jim Martin, SJ, tell us a little bit about who you are today and, and uh, what your work involves. Sure. It turns out there's another James Martin who's a celebrity chef in yes. England, and uh, that is not me. So if you Google James Martin, he's the first one to come up. <laughs> we just had a whole I lot of people a... tune off the podcast. So uh, this is yeah, a celebrity right. chef. He's with us That's live. Right. That's right. I can give you some good recipes for lasagna and baked ziti if you want at the end. Um, I am a Jesuit priest, um, more about that later, a editor-at-large at America Magazine, which is a Catholic magazine. Uh, I'm also a consultor for the Vatican's Secretariat for Communications, which is probably the lowest level position you're going to have in the Vatican. And... Um, yeah, the, uh, the Jesuits are a Catholic religious order founded by St. Ignatius in 1540. Um, we're probably best known in the United States for schools like Georgetown, Boston College, Fordham, St. Louis University, anything named Loyola, mm-hmm. a lot of high schools all over the place. Um, and I entered that uh, religious order in 1988 after working uh, for a few years at GE in corporate finance and human resources. And I was, our, our training is really long. I was ordained 11 years later in 1999, and I've been here at uh, at America Magazine ever since, and you know, writing books and doing all that kind of stuff. Well, in uh, in the circles where I like to run on occasion, you are an all star. So this really is a phenomenal opportunity to spend some time with you. But rather than focusing on your most recent work and where you're going next, I want to kind of look way back at from where you've come. Let's start with your childhood. I, I understand you grew up in Pennsylvania. I did. I grew up in a town called Plymouth Meeting, uh, which is a suburb of Philadelphia, and um, went to, you know, all the, I mean, I did everything that any kid in the 60s and 70s would do. Elementary school, went to a public high school, and then um, went to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I'm 56 years old, so I'm, you know, kind of a Brady Bunch generation kid. As a kid growing up during that time outside of Philly, who were some of the big influences in your life as a child? You know, I would say my teachers, my parents, of course, and my family, but mainly my teachers. I didn't really have any heroes. I certainly wasn't religious back then, so I'm, you know, I'm not going to say like, you know, St. Peter or, <laughs> you know, St. Ignatius. I didn't know who those people were. I knew who St. Peter was, maybe if you pressed me. Um, yeah, my teachers, I had some really good teachers. Uh, it was a very typical suburban um, boyhood. I look back on it, and it seems kind of idyllic. I was talking to my sister the other day, and I'm writing a book about prayer. And actually, I called my mom to confirm this. And I had this uh, sort of memory of myself walking to school when I was very young. And I said, uh, a lot of people in your listening audience will probably relate to this. And I said, Mom, um, I had this memory of walking to kindergarten. That can't be right, can it? (laughs) And she said, yeah. I said, well, how old was I? She (laughs) said, four. And I said... I walked to kindergarten when I was four, and she said, yeah, and then you walked to first grade when you were five, and, you know, it was was pretty far. I mean, you know, first grade was about a mile. Yes. Uh, And I said to my sister, who has two kids, um, what would happen if if you sent your four-year-old child out to walk to kindergarten, you know, a mile away? And my sister said, you'd probably be arrested (laughs) for child endangerment. So it's a very kind of idyllic growing up very Brady Bunch, very suburban. And my, you know, my, the, the role models, I think, would be my teachers who, you know, really, I think, you know, turned me on to reading in particular and, 
and studies. I was a I was a good student in school, and that that was kind of the focus. Doing well in school was really the focus on our family. That's what I was going to ask you. What, what were you into in particular in high school? What what, uh, what kept you busy? Oh, high school. You know, I was um, <laughs> like student council president. You know, one of those kids. We had different. We had a huge high school. I went to a high school of about uh, two thousand kids. Uh, Plymouth White Marsh Senior High School, again a public high school in suburban uh, Philadelphia. Two thousand kids. So there were different crowds. You know, there was like the jock crowd. There was the band crowd. Um, there was the well. There was like the druggy crowd. Yes. I was not part of that. Uh, I was more kind of the honor society crowd. I would say, you know, kind of the nerds. Not exactly nerds, but um, you know, very studious. Um, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time. Uh, studying, uh, you know, having fun with my friends. So I was in a play or two, but mainly studying and, you know, trying to get A's and trying to get into a good school and, uh, you know, like I said, student government. So what my freshman year roommate at college (laughs) (laughs) referred to me as uh, Archie Andrews, you know, from the Archie comic books, not from the uh, new Riverdale uh, TV show where Archie's a little more racy. But, um, yeah, kind of a little bit of a square, but, you know, a good student and, uh, you know, kind of an average kid, basically. Yeah, you know, you've had three-plus decades to look back on it, but in looking back on it, what were you moving toward? What, why strive to do well in school? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, my parents um, encouraged us to do well. Uh, they were both college-educated. My dad was in business. And, you know, there was a desire to do well, not only in terms of the value of education per se, uh, but also to get a good job, you know, to be successful. My parents were by no means materialistic. That was not a big thing in our family. You know, it wasn't about, you know, showing off and having a big car. You know, we were not wealthy growing up. But, you know, the idea of being successful and and supporting yourself was a big deal. And then when I got to college at Penn, um, University of Pennsylvania, I was very happy to get into the Wharton School of Business. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then it became, then my focus shifted. Then it became all about getting a good job and making a lot of money. So Wharton really directed me, I would say, uh, in a particular path, which was really, you know, and this was the, I graduated in 1982. So that was like Reaganomics and the, you know, yuppie mm-hmm. years. People may remember that. And, you know, it was all about getting a job at you know, some big corporate finance firm or investment bank or commercial bank. And I landed at GE. And, you know, that I didn't really do it with a whole lot of reflection because once you stepped onto the treadmill, you know, the, at the other end was this high paying job. You step onto the treadmill in 82. Where are you working and what, what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, so I uh, graduated with a, gr- a degree in finance. We used to say finance, not finance. Finance is a lot more it's fancy. upscale. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you make a right. lot more money with a degree in finance. Well, that was the joke. The joke was, if you say finance, you'll get $10,000 more on your <laughs> starting salary than finance. Um, I took a job with uh, General Electric. Everybody knows that. Uh, GE in New York City with their financial management training program. And that was a two-year program. It was very intense. It was almost like a mini MBA my roommate, who also went to Wharton, a good friend of mine named Rob, we were roommates in um, New York, so this is 82 to 84. He joked, he said, you're the only person who studied um, accounting and finance at Wharton so he could get a job where he studied accounting and finance. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was exciting being in New York in the early 80s as a yuppie and, you know, having a lot of money and the nice suits and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I moved to GE Capital in Connecticut, took a job there. And, 
you know, gradually this is where the Jesuits come in. I started to feel like this is not the right place for me. About how long were you sprinting up the ladder before you realized this may not be the right place? <laughs> that's a great, that's a great image. Uh, the first two years were exciting. I was just at GE. I was a young man. So, you know, 21, 22. And, you know, doing all the stuff that, you know, fill in the blanks that young guys do in New York. Um, and then I moved to Connecticut and it was interesting at first. And then I started to really think this is not right for me. And I'll tell you, um, years ago, I wrote a book called In Good Company, which was about my change from GE to the Jesuits. And I think, you know, I'd write it very differently now. I think, you know, when I wrote the book, I would have said, well, you know, business was really a bad place and it was really, you know, not a great place to work. But the way I look at it now is that it just wasn't, it just wasn't for me. Mm. You know, it just, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are in business and, you know, a lot of friends who are still with GE actually. Um, and, you know, it's a real vocation for a lot of people. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, probably the majority of people in the United States who work are in some sort of office and, it's a real vocation, no uh, but it wasn't for me. It just, it was, I was kind of a square peg in a round hole. And I would say probably around 86 or 87, I started to say, not only what am I doing and why am I so miserable, but how am I supposed to get out of this? You know, I felt kind of trapped, actually. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think so many of us and so many of our friends listening have felt that ting and the ding of misery. Uh, mm -hmm. whether it's in a relationship or health or finance or business, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole nother level and revelation to say, and so what will I do to get out of this misery? Uh, and what am I willing to invest and give up? So I'm curious, how do you make that leap from being miserable into discovering a new calling? Well, you know, at the time, I wouldn't have been able to uh, 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 yeah, of sort of explain it or answer that question. At the time, I only knew I was miserable and I wanted out, you know, so it was a kind of push. Now I would say that, you know, as a believer and as, you know, someone who spends his time thinking about these things, that the the person has to see or is, is invited to see that that might be God, you know, sending you a little bit of a message. And, you know, because, you know, how else is God going to work other than in our interior lives? And so it's a bit of a push, you know, as well. There's a bit of a pull to something else. And so... One of the primary ways that God works in our lives is through desires. And my desire at that time, although I would not have been able to say it this way and to use this vocabulary, but my desire at the time was, you know, for something more fulfilling for me, something more satisfying. And that was um, at once pushing me out and pulling me towards something else. So to pay attention to those movements in our soul as ways that God has of calling to it. That's the call, basically. You know, that, that's, that's the call. Everyone thinks it's, you know, hearing voices or seeing visions, right. but it's a kind of a simple attraction to something. All right. So, still so explain to me how you go from crushing it at GE Capital in Connecticut to uh, feeling miserable and then ultimately feeling this calling to be, of all things, a, a, a Jesuit priest. Well, the, the short answer is that uh, it, it was the being miserable, I started to get like stress-related illnesses and, you know, stomach problems and stuff like that. I went to a psychologist, um, you know, for all the stress and we went through all these, you know, I mean, everything. I'd never been to a psychologist before. I was a little embarrassed, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not crazy. Um, but he said, you know, I'll help you deal with the stress. And at one point, uh, you know, I'd been, I'd, I'd run into uh, the writings of a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. 
very uh, well-known in Catholic circles uh, for, in the 1940s, having left his life to enter a Trappist monastery. And he wrote a book called The Seven-Story Mountain, which was just, you know, the whole thing, to, 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 to use one word, seemed romantic to me. You know, really beautiful. <laughs> just, yeah, like, wow, that's so beautiful. He lives in a monastery and he prays all day and it's so quiet and it's so different <laughs> than my GE life. Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt. It was, it was just so different that it almost made me laugh. Like, God, who, who knew even a world like this yes. existed? So anyway, so I was talking about Merton and I approached the Jesuits because I'd met them um, at Fairfield University, which was not too far from where I was working. But I said, I, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm not joining a religious order. So anyway, um, you know, a year passes, and I'm still going to this therapist once a month or once a week. I can't remember. And at one point he said to me, you know, we, why are you doing this? Why are you at, at GE? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I just I didn't really ask myself those questions in high school, certainly not in college. And my parents were pretty supportive, and everybody was all, you know, like, let's go, 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 go. And he said, I'll never forget this. This is a question I think every young person could should be asked, which changed my life, which is, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? And I remember sitting in his office vividly. I remember, you know, I can picture it right now talking to you. And I remember thinking, well, I joined the Jesuits. Mm. And so I said to him, I joined the Jesuits. And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, yeah, why don't I? <laughs> and that was the question I needed to just, you know, kind of take the plunge, the leap of faith, as it were. Man, it's, 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 it's a jump out of a plane, seemingly without a parachute, to go from corporate America to the Jesuits. And for, for those who may not know, I mean, you're going to be taking some vows that will radically change your life, including chastity, poverty, obedience, among others. Uh, right? yeah, although, you know, it's funny, when you feel like the plane's on fire, you don't really think about <laughs> the jump. You're just like, well I want out of here. And it really did seem, you know, I, I, I often want to look back and say, you know, what was that 27-year-old kid like at the time, and how much thought did he really give to it? But you're right. I didn't know a whole lot about what my life was going to be like. I just knew that the guys that I met seemed very happy. The program in the novitiate seemed beautiful. I mean, prayer, working with the poor, it just seemed fantastic. And I thought, why don't more people do this? But, you know, I really, to your point, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no real clue. I think I probably understood about 20% of it. And then certainly my parents and my friends were horrified because I hadn't shared any of this with them. That was so my next were. question. I think it's one thing to want to become a, a guitarist in the, the alleyways of New York. It's another thing <laughs> to tell your family you're doing this and whether, whatever the passion project is. How did mom and dad react to you saying, hey, uh, I'm leaving GE Capital and I'm going to become a priest? They were horrified, 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 angry, upset, um, frightened. My mom cried. My sister cried. It was it was pretty it was pretty awful actually. My mother reminds me that I told her on Mother's Day too, because <laughs> <laughs> I happened to be home. I shouldn't laugh. She was really upset. No, and you know, they did they had no idea that I was even thinking about it because I was embarrassed because I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't know any really religious people. Who the hell do I know that's religious or praying and all that kind of stuff? And they were worried, let me think, they were worried that I was going to be lonely. That was one thing, mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic. I have, you know, dozens of, you know, Jesuit friends now, and my Jesuit brothers. I have 
theoretically 15,000 Jesuit brothers now, so I'm certainly not lonely. Large family. They thought I was never going to see them again, which is also funny because, you know, I see them all the time. And they thought, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, that I'd be kind of locked away in this monastery and never see the world and that the world wouldn't use my talents and what a waste. And I mean, my, my parents said that over and over again. What a waste. We shouldn't, you know, you should have never gone to Penn. It's terrible. And you know, in the in the end, I think the Jesuits use my talents a lot better than GE does. So they it, they they got there. They eventually, I would say, about a year or two later, they sort of got it. But at the beginning, it was terrible. And frankly, my friends were just as horrified. They thought I was crazy, like literally crazy. So, uh, how do you go from kind of aspirationally thinking of Thomas Merton locked away in a seven-story mountain? Mm-hmm to becoming a Jesuit priest, and then ultimately to becoming a prolific writer and speaker around the world. Like, well, that, that's, a, that's a leap also. Well, that's a good question. Um, Thomas Merton's life, for those who don't know him or know what the Trappists are, it's a Catholic religious order. They're cloistered, which means they're in a monastery, and they do take a vow of silence, although they talk from time to time. And it's mostly prayer and manual labor and, you know, a little bit of writing and studying, things like that. But it's mostly prayer seven times a day in common uh, in the chapel. Well, you know, I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't going to fit me and that I wasn't going to fit there, although I think it's a beautiful vocation and I, I visit monasteries fairly frequently. But I found the Jesuits who are very active. The ideal of the Jesuit, as you probably know from your Jesuit education, is the contemplative in action. So the person who has a contemplative heart, but is living an active life. And, you know, you enter the Jesuits, um, this is a big word, um, it's a terrible word for kind of, you know, colloquial, because it means like the opposite. Mm -hmm. We enter the Jesuits indifferent, which usually means like, I could give a damn. Uh, But in the Jesuits, it means free. Hmm. So when you enter the novitiate, you know, I don't enter the Jesuits to say, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be an English professor at Georgetown University. That's all I want to do. (laughs) The Jesuits would say, uh, no, that's not the way it works. You have to be open to, you know, whatever the call is, whatever the need is, and, you know, whatever we think your talents are. So I entered, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'd work in some soup kitchen somewhere. That was my ideal. Um, But, you know, gradually the Jesuit formation is really long, two years of novitiate, two years of philosophy, Three years of full-time work, I worked in Africa with refugees and at America Magazine. Four years of theology, then ordination for those of us who are ordained. And along the way, I was writing. And who and lived that long. I mean, that, that's a, a decade-long <laughs> journey. <laughs> well, the joke is, I have a friend who is, this is, shows you that Jesuits can be almost anything. <laughs> I have a friend who is a Jesuit physician. So he's a Jesuit priest who's also a physician. He specializes in gerontology. And halfway through my training, I said, so he's a, you know, he's a regular doctor. Um, I said, boy, I could be a brain surgeon in less time. And he paused for a second, and you could see him counting up the years, mm-hmm. and he said, you're right. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's long, um, but that, that's because St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, uh, really wanted to emphasize learning. He, he was an educated man himself, and he wanted Jesuits to be well-trained. So along the way, I was writing, and after ordination, they assigned me to America Magazine, which is one of our longtime ministries, as we say. It's been around since 1909, and I've been here for 20 years, which is kind of crazy for me. Did you I know? Used the, I used to be the young guy, now I'm the old guy. 
<laughs> yeah, well, there's some company I would imagine around you. We, yeah. Did you know when you entered Indifferent that you had a gift as an author, as a gift as a writer? Uh, no, and some people would argue that I don't have a gift right now as, <laughs> as an author or a writer. I enjoyed reading. I knew that. I liked English. I worked on the, I mean, you know, this is like a lot of high school kids. I worked on the uh, junior high school newspaper and my yearbook. So, you know, I enjoyed writing. But, you know, when I entered Wharton, they didn't spend a whole lot of right. time writing. We just didn't. And certainly not at GE. I mean, you know, I wrote letters and reports, which is important, but it's not the kind of writing I do. And then when I entered the Jesuits, it happened when I was in Africa working with refugees in Nairobi. I was helping them start small businesses uh, that I wrote stories about the refugees and they got published because I, I really wanted to tell that story. I felt it was really important to kind of share that. So that's how I got started, sort of. When did you go from writing a story about something that you were just kind of passion project, if you will, to, uh, I think you've written more than 10 books. You've been on every cable network. You're, you, you know, you, you're contributing for the New York Times. When, when do you go from just kind of passively sharing a little bit of what's on your heart to being in the spotlight as bright as it is right now? Well, you know, it happens gradually. Um, and most of the stuff I do is really not in the spotlight. It's, you know, like I'm right now I'm, going over some galleys for a book. It's just sitting at a desk with my red pen. Um, you know, what happens is, you know, I work at America Magazine, and we are called upon regularly by the media to provide commentary on, you know, anytime the Pope sneezes, you know, you get a phone call, like, what does this mean? Yes. Um, yes. And then that, that translates into, you know, people being invited to write for different newspapers and being invited to be on TV or radio stations or programs like your own. Um, and so it's gradual. Then, you know, if you're not crazy uh, and you return people's phone calls, then, you know, you get on people's, uh, you know, email list. So I would have said Rolodex is 20 years ago, but, uh, and, you know, and then so people call you back and, and you, you were on these shows more and more. Were you more nervous with Stephen Corbett the first time or John O'Leary? Oh, uh, I'm sure it's O'Leary. You don't even need to answer I, it. It's. I'll, I'll answer my own question. It is yeah, O'Leary. You are you are much less of a wild card. I didn't know what Colbert was going to say. I really didn't. And uh, but I was comfortable because I knew that he was he is Catholic, and so I thought he's not going to be terrible. And it turned out to be a lot of fun. And I was on that show a couple times. So, but there's always you know to be frank, you know when when you're on a new show like your own. Um, you know, this is my first time on your show. Um, you know, you never know. Right. I mean, you know, people can come at you with these kind of crazy questions. Usually not. Uh, but, um, but, you know, you always have to be on your toes. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes from the crazy questions come some pretty uh, cool conversations if both parties are open to it. And unfortunately, in our media today and with our politicians today and social media today, Typically, typically we're not, which, by the way, Father Jim, is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on to our secular program, because mm -hmm. I think talking about spirituality and faith and transitioning it in life matters to all of us. Mm -hmm. It does. And it's, uh, it's uh, you know, even if you're looking more broadly at questions of meaning yes, and what do I want to do with my life, that's something everybody struggles with if they let themselves, if they allow themselves to ask the, those questions. So what your mom and dad and sister were raising their hands and, and begging you not to join, mm -hmm. you did submit, you did enter in. And uh, I'm curious, what has been the hardest part about um, leaving the corporate 
structure and joining uh, the Society of Jesus? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I've never been asked that. I've never been asked. I've, I've sometimes been asked, you know, maybe what do you miss? But the hardest thing about leaving the corporate structure is the money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is related to the, I mean, obviously I miss my friends, but I see my friends. I mean, I, I see my friends from GE all the time. So it's not as if, I mean, and I'm working in an office, so it's not as if, you know, I, I miss that environment. Um, in fact, I'll have to share something with you very briefly. We recently sold the building that America Media was uh, in for years and years, since the 60s. And we moved into a temporary office. And I couldn't stop laughing when I moved into the office because it looks exactly like GE circa 1985. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Same day. You're back home, shift. man. Welcome home. I am back. So, but I, I think since I see my GE friends and since I work in an office, you know, the vow of poverty, that, that's not the, mo- the hardest thing about being a Jesuit, but the hardest thing about leaving the corporate life is, you know, was having money. I mean, that's kind of nice, yes. you know, get a big fat paycheck and go out, oh, I think I'll buy a new, new suit today. Uh, you know, I can't do that. I mean, I have, you know, a couple black suits, but <laughs> I can't just decide on a whim to, you know, roll into Brooks Brothers and, you know, buy a handful of ties. I can't. And, you know, that, that, that can be a problem sometimes, but it ultimately is very freeing to not have to worry about that stuff because I rely on the Jesuits and, Everything I earn and all the royalties I make and all my salary goes to the Jesuits, and it's kind of freeing. So I don't, I don't. The, the better thing is I don't have to worry about that stuff. Well, and that it's part of my follow-up question is so what has been the most liberating aspect of being a Jesuit? Yes. Oh, uh, just being yourself. You know, being able to be myself and following Jesus uh, and. Uh, you know, following the Gospels and uh, just devoting my life entirely to God. That, that's that been really liberating and fun because that's who I am. And I wasn't the guy who was stuck behind a desk at GE, you know, getting yelled at and being stressed. And that wasn't who I am. So really being who you are, I would say. The relationship with God and prayer is really important to me, that the spirituality and being able to know that you know, uh, God wants a relationship with you at the most fundamental level, and, you know, just unpacking that for the last 30 years. Uh, also, you know, I know you asked for one, but I'm giving you a few more. The the, the biggest surprise, frankly, and I, I tell this to young Jesuits, has been Jesuit friends. Hmm. Because when you enter, you say, well, all right, I know that the spirituality and the relationship with God and with Jesus is going to be meaningful, and I know that the work's going to be meaningful, which it is, but... I have all these Jesuit friends, you know, and not just in a community as in we live together, but I have, you know, I have really good friends. We vacation together. We go out to dinner. I'm going to see a friend tonight. You know, it, that's great. Yes. It's, it's just, it's just, they don't talk about that in the recruiting literature. They don't say, and you're going to have all these great friends. You know, you know, it's a, a huge blessing. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus says, anyone who leaves things behind gets the hundredfold. You know, it's like a big uh, harvest. And that's, for me, that's the hundredfold, all my Jesuit brothers. I've been fortunate to make friends all over the world and with all various types of backgrounds. And one of the questions I ask them when they believe something other than what I believe is, why do you believe what you do? So, Father Jim... You gave away your life in some regards to something that you now believe. Why do you believe what you believe? 
Well, at the most basic level, because of experiences. So I've had experiences in prayer in particular uh, in my life um, of God, of God's love for me. Uh, very vivid. Uh, like I said, in prayer and in daily life. Uh, and of Jesus' love for me. And that might strike some listeners as strange, but you know, I'd ask them to think about the times where they've been particularly moved or have felt God kind of, you know, breaking into their lives. You know, most people have these experiences, but I think all people have these experiences, but often they're not encouraged to reflect on them and to name them as God. You know, to say that the experience of holding your first child, you know, feeling this unbelievable love and just not knowing where it comes from is God. That's God kind of awakening this love in you. The experience of wanting more in your life and not knowing why you're dissatisfied and, and, and desiring more and desiring fulfillment and satisfaction and wholeness, that's God. That's God calling to you. That is the, the, the experience of falling in love, you know, and being called, you know, to your spouse. It's, that's God. That's God drawing you together. And so, you know, experiencing that means that it's more than just a belief. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lived reality. So I believe what I do because I've experienced it. And also, you know, I believe in my mind, you know, intellectually, uh, that it's true. Mm. So I believe that the story of Jesus uh, is also true. You know, a lot of times in tragedy, individuals, businesses, communities, wh- whoever is struck by it will ask, where's, where's God in this mess? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, y- you had, for American history, one of the, the messier of situations. You were in New York, I believe, during September 11th, 2001, mm-hmm. and you stuck around afterwards. You were, you were part of the... Uh, of all the devastation and the search at Ground Zero, and I believe you even wrote an entire book on it. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell us about that experience. Well, you know, my experience was very different than a lot of other people's. I was in New York on that day, and you know, could see the burning towers down the street from us. We were on Sixth Avenue, and we just had a clear shot of the you know, that view, which I can still remember. And then on. Gee, starting on the 13th, I went down to the site. Grounds, they, you know, they started to call it Ground Zero pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I worked with the ref, rescue workers. And for me, uh, you know, I, I had to get down there. This, this is a, an answer to one of your earlier questions. I had to say to myself, I was ordained by them. I had to say to myself, all right, what can I do, right? Who am I down here? And I thought, well, I cannot be identifying bodies, and nor, nor would I. I mean, that, I wasn't a rescue worker. But I can't work in the morgue. I, I just can't do that. Uh, but I can work with the rescue workers. I can do that. So it was a lot of counseling them and praying with them and saying mass. And and so why was my experience different? Because I experienced this great sense of unity and love when I was there among the rescue workers and among the people who come from all over the, the, the country mainly, but really all over the world to help. So there was this great sense of community and unity. And I experienced it as, you know, afterwards, a real experience of the Holy Spirit bringing people together, this great kind of selflessness. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, was to, it's called Searching for God at Ground Zero, was to sort of share with people the the analog to the evil that happened there, mm-hmm. and which really was, was pure evil in my estimation. So it was really something, and I, because I still work here, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure you have this experience, if you don't leave a place the passage of time can seem very short. So I think, boy, you know, you know, 9-11, that was 16 years ago. And it feels, in a way, like a million years ago, and in a way, it feels like yesterday. 
because I look out and I see the same skyline. It's you know, different, of course, because of the Trade Center. But I'm in New York. It's the same subways. I'm working in the same job. And so, yeah, it was a very profound experience for me, very quick, too, because uh, I was only there for a couple weeks. You know, Fred Rogers, surprisingly, you did not think you were going to get a Mr. Rogers quote today on the podcast, but you're about oh, to get one, Oh, I'm a big man. fan. Big fan of him. Well, one of my favorite Fred Rogers quotes is he said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things on the news, my mother would always say to me, look for the helpers. You will always mm. find people helping out. Mm. And I think what you were looking for during the September 11th attacks and then beyond uh, was not the devastation, which was everywhere and very easy to celebrate and broadcast and get angry about, but you were looking and uh, and then loving the helpers. And I just think it's it's an inspiring angle. Well, right, and, and I was uh, I was helped by the helpers. I was yeah. I remarked in the book that one of the most surprising things was here are all these uh, police officers, firefighters, a community I hadn't worked with before. You know, so I didn't know that sort of world. And you know, there they were, and their friends had been killed. You know, a lot of times, and there they were pulling out bodies. And I would come up to them to you know just talk to them. First thing they would say is, "Oh, Father, how are you? How are you doing, Father? How are you holding up?" So it was this real sense of other direct in this. In the Jesuits, we have this phrase, I'm sure you know, it's called uh, men and women for others. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's one of the goals of Jesuit education. And, and I thought, well, these are real, mostly men down there at the time, these were real men for others. And they were really other directed. They were more worried about me than they were about themselves. So it was really very moving. You went... Uh... On a, on a trip to Israel, you went mm-hmm. and traveled around for weeks, and then you wrote an entire book about it. I would imagine it's it's in in uh, at least in numbers one of the more successful books you've ever written. I think it's uh, Jesus: A Pilgrimage, produced by Harper One. Why would you go, and what what did you what, what surprised you most about the journey? Uh, the journey. Oh, two great questions. Yeah, I'm really happy with that book. Um, I really poured a lot of myself into it. Um, and when I was writing this book on Jesus, my editor at America Magazine, uh, former editor, his name is uh, Drew Christensen, said, well, you have to go to the Holy Land. Yeah. If, if you're going to write a book on Jesus, you have to go to the Holy Land. And it was a kind of Life of Christ book. And I said, you might be surprised to hear this, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to go. <laughs> you know, too far, kind of dangerous, which it's not. Hot. Um, and, and hot. And also, I didn't want my own imaginative... Uh, idea of Nazareth and Galilee and Capernaum and Bethlehem and Jerusalem ruined, you know, by some tacky touristy <laughs> site with, yeah, you know, with gift shops. Plastic and, I imagine, yeah, blinking lights and stuff. And he said, you, re- you really have to go. And let me tell you, it is a trip of a lifetime. And if there's any Christians out there, I think every Christian should make a trip to the Holy Land. It's not that, I mean, it's a little further than going to, you know, Rome or whatever. Um, it was amazing. Uh, and what was the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise, which I still am surprised that every time I go, I've been about four or five times, is that Galilee, specifically the Sea of Galilee, and you know, it's, it's the same Sea of Galilee, is largely untouched. It, it is, you go, and you know, it's not like there's, you know, you imagine like skyscrapers yes. would be around it. It looks as it did more, you know, uh, more or less in Jesus's time. It's unbelievable. It is a beautiful, pristine body of water. And when you stand on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, for example, in Capernaum, which is a 
town that was his base of ministry. We don't talk about it as much as Nazareth or Bethlehem, but he spent three years there, roughly. That's his base in Galilee. You know, that's where Peter lived, and Peter's house would be, and it's a fishing village. You can stand on the shore. You know, that's Capernaum. Yes. They're, they're sure it's always been there. That's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the shore. He would have seen this. Mm. No question. There's no question. It's not like, well, maybe. No, I mean, this, is, this would have been the view. And, you know, they found, you know, they find places like Magdala, Magdala, where Mary was, Mary of Magdala, or Bethsaida, where Peter and Andrew were from. Well, there they are. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is, and we know he was there from the Gospels, right? These aren't mythical places. These are real towns. It really grounds Jesus in the Gospels in a way that I could have never imagined. And, and really, the Sea of Galilee, and, and even in Jerusalem, you go and you see places, you know, that we read about in the Gospels, like the Mount of Olives. Well, there it is. Right. I mean, that it's called the Mount of Olives today, and it's always been called the Mount of Olives, and this is the valley that Jesus would have walked into on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the crucifixion. Here it is. <laughs> here he talks about the walls. Here, here are the walls of Jerusalem. They've always been there. It's really striking, and people are very moved when they... We, we've done a couple pilgrimages now with America Media, and people always say the same thing. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm here. I mean, I know that he existed. I believe in Jesus. But to stand there is quite another thing. How has it changed and uh, and informed you since you've returned home? Well, I am... That's a great question. I always want to go back. Uh, when I pray now, and I... Everyone always says this. When I read a gospel passage and it says, Jesus went into the temple, or excuse me, the synagogue of Capernaum, or Jesus went to Bethsaida, I know what it's like. Mm. I, I can imagine it. So it's, it's, it totally changed my idea of who he was and how he lived, and it made his humanity much more present. A good friend of mine said, which I, I quoted in the book, uh, which I really liked the this insight, it's like going to the... Um, childhood home of a friend of yours hmm. or the, your family home, no matter how well you think you know your friend, it just opens things up for you. You know, you go to the house for Thanksgiving, you go, okay, now I get it. I get you more. I see you more in your totality. And that's, that's sort of what a trip to the Holy Land did for me. It really helped me to see Jesus in his totality. What, what would you like to say to people who uh, are either lukewarm to faith or completely turned off by it. Not just Catholic, your faith, sure, but all faiths. The, the idea of God with a capital G. What, what, how would you, what would you say to them? I would say, you know, that 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 most people, I think all people, even if they're turned off by, usually they're turned off by religion. They're not turned off by God so much. That's fair. That that the and I'm not correcting. I'm just saying that you know that, that's kind of my experience. Um, that all of us have a kind of desire for God, you know, and that you might be turned off by religion, you might be turned off by Catholicism, you might be, might be lukewarm, but in your heart of hearts, there is still that desire for more, something else. Something is not satisfying. Life is not satisfying to you. Even if you're married and have kids, there's something that you feel is more. And St. Augustine, and well, I think the greatest thing he ever wrote was, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, God. That restlessness, that restlessness that's in your heart, is one way that God calls to you. And sometimes it's even stronger. Sometimes it's a desire for community or a desire for, you know, uh, the, the words of Jesus or following Jesus or the person of Jesus. And 
All these desires, even the desire for the desire, as St. Ignatius says, even the desire to want that Mm -hmm. is all coming from God. And so the first step in the spiritual life for people like that, people who might be lukewarm or people who might be turned off, is this, is the insight that the desire for God is actually God calling you. And that once people can accept that, or can you at least consider that, it just changes everything. That they realize that it's not just some weird feeling they have, that it is, in fact, God who's calling them. And, you know, I saw a plaque in a, in a retreat house once, and it said, that which you seek is seeking you. Hmm. Your mother, really? you ruined her Mother's Day, and she still resents you for it. <laughs> no, she hasn't. She's forgiven me, because she, now I'm like, oh, my son, the Jesuit <laughs> priest, you know. Well, that's, that, that, that's my final question before we shift gears into the, the Live Inspired 7. How, how has your mom been changed through this experience? <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, she was transformed completely in terms of, you know, her understanding of the Jesuits. So not, not that she was ignorant before, but in other words, she thought it was going to be terrible. And now she's very happy. I'm a Jesuit. Well, you know, I think my family in general, um, you know, they're, they're happy that I'm happy. They're part of the Jesuit family. So it's, it's, it's not a big deal for them anymore. It's not, you know, it's like, you know, okay, he's a Jesuit. This is what he does. I would say also that they have been in their own ways, um, how shall I say it, um, more open to questions of God. Mm. So, you know, my family before would never talk about church or God. or, And I think that the Jesuits, not so much me, but the Jesuits and, and the things that I've, you know, sort of shared with them have made them curious, too. Mm. You know? So my mom, for example, a couple of years ago, went on a one-day retreat, and she would have never done that before. Um, you know, my, my nephews, for example, who I love, uh, one's 18 and one's 12, you know, they're, they're comfortable asking me questions about God. You know, one of them goes to a Jesuit school now. He goes to Fordham University. So I think that happens in most families. Now, some families are already very Catholic for a lot of Jesuits that enter, but my family was kind of lukewarm. And I think that what's happened is that it, that door has been open for them more, if I can say that. I mean, you'd probably have to ask my mom. She'd, I'm sure she'd have. She'll be I'm our sure next she'd, guest. She, <laughs> she'd be a good guest, too. I bet Mother she would. Well, she has an amazing son, and, and uh, I want to walk you through the seven questions and sure. then let you get back after your day. Uh, number one, Father Jim, what has been the best book you've ever read? Uh, the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. No, no question. And you, you mentioned it earlier, but just give us a snapshot of what that book's about. Yeah, it changed my life. Uh, I would say it's the most certainly the most influential book I've ever read for me. Uh, it's the story of Thomas Merton, who was a kind of dissolute, um, uh, you know, American, but grown up, uh, raised in France and the UK, who finds, you know, true meaning by entering a Trappist monastery uh, in the ni- early 1940s beautifully written. And that's the book that changed my life. That's the book that started everything. And I have a same copy that I had uh, 30 years ago. Mm. This next question applies to every single guest I've ever had on, except for you. But here it comes. Question number two. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died, Father Jim, at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Oh, that's super easy. I turn the check right over into the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. That's, 
Easiest question ever. Uh, very good. If your house caught fire and all living things and all living people are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you grab? Also easy for a Jesuit. Uh, at the day of our vows, where we take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, we're given a cross, a metal cross, and we keep it our whole lives and we're buried with it. So mm-hmm. I'd grab my vow cross. That's very easy. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day, having a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to spend that time with? Also easy. Jesus. <laughs> What's your first question? Easy. What's your first question to him? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, my first question to Jesus would be, what would my life have been like if I didn't join the Jesuits? Hmm. What's his he'd answer? Probably, he'd probably say, I'm sure he'd say one of those Jesus answers, like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you, that this was the path for you, and there was no life for you outside the Jesuits. It was it, Jesus would give me one of those non-answers he often gives people. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I'd, I'd probably want to ask him about his early life, because we know very little about that. What was life like in Nazareth growing up? Well, and, and in your book, when you traveled around his native land, I think that's one of the cool things you unpacked and kind of opened up that I'd never even thought about. There were 30 years that were completely non-mentioned. What happened? Yeah, most people, yeah most people don't think about that. He was 30 years as a carpenter, or you know, 18 years, 12 to, age 12 to 30. We never think about that. But, you know, he worked. So I want to see that. I, I want to ask Jesus. I'll tell you a funny story. My first spiritual director, my first spiritual counselor, I said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have all these questions for Jesus. And he said, no, because this is a very theological answer. When you're in heaven, you know, you'll be fully satisfied and fully, you know, known and fully loved, and you won't have any more questions. And I said, uh, no, I, I will have <laughs> questions. <laughs> what is the, uh, the best advice that you've ever received? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would say there's two, but I think the most important thing is um, don't let anyone prevent you from becoming the person that you want to be. Tell me what that means you know. to you. Well, you know, a lot of times we react to people um, or we, you know, or we try to be a person that's going to be liked or cool or popular and that's not the person we're meant to be. We're meant to be ourselves. And I think I spent many years, my 20s and 30s, you know, trying to be the kind of person everybody's going to like. Mm-hmm. And that's useless. And so just be yourself is probably a sort of shorter way of saying that. Well, you gave the commencement address at Gonzaga, and uh, although your, your, your presentation was a bit longer, I think that was the core of it. Yeah. <clears throat> and I thought be yourself. Was... And, and I think, you know, people need to hear that because, you know, there's so much emphasis on comparing and who's whatever, who's richer, who's more popular, who's, you know, supposedly better looking, you know, which is all subjective, who has the quote-unquote better job. You know, in the Jesuits, we have an expression which is compare and despair. Mm. And I'll share with you a little psychological insight some therapist told me years ago. If you compare yourself to other people, you are usually comparing yourself to what you falsely see as that perfect person's supposedly perfect life, right? So we say, oh, you know. Right. Look at the O'Leary family. Everything's great for them. They have it all made. And, you know, oh, look at their house. And, and look at her well, husband. No, he's hot. He's athletic. Well, <laughs> he's extraordinarily But, you know, you, you don't know what's going on inside people's lives or what problems they have. And you end up, it's, it's sort of typical, you end up or we end up comparing yes. that perfect life to our 
as this one therapist told me, mixed bag life, you know, full of good and bad, mm-hmm. you know, like I have good stuff and bad stuff. And guess what? The mixed bag life always loses out because you're comparing something that's a perfect fantasy to reality, you know. And so, you know, the expression compare and despair. So you try not to compare. I love it. Another way to sum that up is it's, uh, I've read somewhere, the grass is greener on the side you water. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. All right. Yeah. So we'll, two more questions. And uh, and uh, the, the second to last one is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? That's a great question. I've often thought about that. Be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Be, stop, stop trying to be what you think other people want you to be or stop trying to be popular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then... Hey, guess what? In seven years, you're going to join the Jesuits. You might as well join now. (laughs) Father Jim Martin, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Now, that's that's a good question. I want to be clear. You mean a sentence that I kind of live by or a sentence that sums kind of me up, like my life? I believe it sums you up. When when they're uh, dishing away the the mac and cheese and the potatoes (laughs) around your handsome pine (laughs) basket— they're saying this about you. So it sums up your, uh, the entirety of your... I would love it. What I would like it to be or what I think it will be? How about both? <laughs> What's that? How about both? Since you're stringing this thing out, you get to answer both ways. I know. What, what it will be. What it will be. Um, wasn't he that guy that wrote all those books? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, it, what I wish it would... What I hope it will be is he was a good Jesuit. Uh, Father Jim Martin, author speaker, homilist, priest, friend, son, traveler, sojourner, uh, a man for others. You are indeed a good Jesuit, a good friend, and I am so grateful for this time today. That's really nice. Thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say. It's lovely to be on with your with you, and uh, God bless you. Yes, indeed. That was Father Jim Martin. This is John O'Leary, and my friends, today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I appreciate you joining me for this Live Inspired podcast, this one with Father Jim Martin. I I love his simplicity, his intelligence, his candor, his humor. I thought he was very funny. And his willingness to share his journey, the ups and downs, the the good moments, movements, and the ones where he may have made a few missteps with us today. Very honest conversation. It inspired me. I hope it inspired you as well. Uh, Here's a guy who made a radical leap in his life because someone asked him the question, what would you do if you could do anything that you wanted to do? So that's my question that I'm going to leave you with today. What would you do, my friends, followers, leaders, community, live inspired group? What would you do if you could do anything that you wanted to do? And then rather than just having you vaguely answer it, here's my next follow-up question. What are you going to do about it? If if you wanted to have a great marriage, great. What are you going to do about it? You want to take back your health? Great. What are you going to do about it? You want to grow spiritually, financially, professionally, in any aspect of life that matters to you today? That's what you want to do? Perfect. My request is that you have the audacity, the courage, the faithfulness, the zest, the belief to leap, to leap and to trust that the floor shall appear. Uh, It will appear, and I think Father Jim Martin was an incredible example of doing exactly that. I hope it inspired you to do the same in your life. Now, if you enjoyed this this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor. Take a few moments right now to 
Share this with your social communities. Share it through your email. Tell the ladies and gentlemen that you're grocery shopping with right now as you tune into this podcast about the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. I think in a marketplace of negativity and regret and mistakes and darkness, how cool it is to have the reminder that there is reason for hope, there is reason for faith, there is reason for possibility, and there is reason to believe that the best of our days remain in front of us. So tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell that stranger seated right next to you about the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Tell them they can learn more like you can at johnolearyinspires.com. You can learn about our speaking, our books, our videos, our podcast, johnolearyinspires.com. My friends, thanks so much for checking it out this time. And until next time, don't forget that this is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>